I want to start off by sharing a little bit of my journey um, with you. Um, and it's actually not something I've talked about much in my journey. Um, when I was a freshman at the University of Minnesota, I was encountered with the message of Jesus Christ for the first time. It was through a Bible study, and we were reading through the Gospel of John. And I remember we were just going through the one chapter a week, and these are things I had heard growing up, uh, being in a you know, Sunday school class. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. But I recall being a freshman now in college or something about being on your own that all of a sudden now, do I really believe this? And she start looking at some of these things a little bit differently. And so I remember we went through the first two chapters of who Jesus was. That was the main question. Who is Jesus? And I was starting to wrestle with some of the, what was I going to believe as an adult? I was 18, but what was I going to believe as an adult? And the third week of this study, instead of having study, we went and heard a, a speaker. He was a pastor, and he had shared his story on what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And he quoted, not from the book of John, but from one of the um, letters of John, he quoted 1 John 5, 11, 12, and 13, which says, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he wrote, verse, and then he quoted verse 13, which says, and I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I grew up in the church. I had never heard that before. Now, it might have been read, and maybe, I just, maybe somebody said it, but I'd never heard that a person could know whether or not they were going to heaven when they died based on if they just took the son. He who has the son has life. So the next morning, I decided that's what I wanted to do. 6.30 in the morning in the shower in House 10, a frontier hall, fourth floor, I decided that's what I want to do. Oh, Jesus, I wanted to take you. I wanted you to let you be my Savior and to be my sin bearer. And I've shared that part of my story many, many times. And it has the added benefit of being true. That is really what happened. But I haven't shared this aspect of it. That was on, I believe that was on a Thursday. About two weeks later and a Friday. So we're looking at 15 days later. I went to uh, the guy who was helping me in my Christian walk. He said, and I'm going to date myself here now, but there's this new movie out and I really want to see it. It's The Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Look at Nicole with her hand over her mouth. It's like, oh my gosh, you're old, Drake. It's Return of the Jedi. We went downtown right here. I think it's Skyway Theater, one of the ones right downtown. And I was brand new in the Lord. And uh, we went to this movie, and it was going to be just a great time. A bunch of guys went, and we were sitting there. And we're watching this movie. And during that movie, I had some of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had in my entire life. We're just watching a movie, and I felt as if Satan himself were speaking to me. I'd never had this experience before. It was the most bizarre thing. I, I, I was trembling. I was, call, I was clammy. I couldn't hardly, hardly even think straight. And I just thought, you know what? I know this is a movie about good and evil, and I know I've just made this significant decision to be a follower of Jesus, so this probably has something to do with it. It'll probably get better. And the movie keeps going on. If you remember, there's a point in the movie where Darth Vader looks at Luke Skywalker and says, 
Yeah. <laughs> or to quote the McKenzie brothers, hey, turn to the dark side, eh? I mean, he looks at him and he says, turn to the dark side. You're, you're going to think I'm nuts and that's okay. You have to love me. <laughs> I honestly felt the devil say that to me. Turn to the dark side. It's just as much as you have turned towards Christ now, being 15 days old in Christ, I want you to turn towards me. All kinds of wonderful things will happen. I'm not kidding you. I had that happen. I don't share this often because people think, oh, Looney Tunes, you know, straight jacket. Honest, this is not audible, but these things are going through. I'm sweating. So the guys are having a great time in the movie. I'm just sweating in this movie. I am freaked out by the reality of an evil in the world. Satan was a concept to me before, and now he was real. That led from, I had 15 days only that I really enjoyed my Christian experience. That led to between a six-month and a one-year depression, deep into depression. And I had to decide, am I going to chuck this Christianity thing completely because it just, it's so hard. Every time I seem to read my Bible, I keep hearing the same scary voice saying, you'll never make it. I'm going to get you. I'm out to, I even had ideas that there were people coming to, to that, that Satan was communicating to his people that were going to come and kill me. And these are thoughts are going through my head. And I'm just going, what am I, nuts? No, I'm not nuts. And if these are, I'm looking at people who are, some of you are nodding your head because you've had these kind of thoughts too. There is an enemy of your souls. There is an enemy of your souls. And he wants to trash you. Now, when I was in the midst of all that, right in the middle of it, it was summer. I went home. This was April when I had went to the movie. And, and I went home and I worked at American Linen in Hibbing, Minnesota. I worked my job. I did a bunch of different things. One of the things I did was I pulled rugs out of, a, of a, you know, the kind of rugs, you know, you lay, you know, out there, entryway rugs. You took them out of the dryer. And we couldn't get them below 120 degrees because it was 120 degrees in the room. That's, you're pulling these 120 degrees. So, okay, here I'm a little bit loopy, and it's 120 degrees. I'm sweating crazy and having these wild thoughts all summer long. That's what my summer was like. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, this is the worst summer of my life. And then the greatest theologian in the world spoke to me personally, my mother. And she said this, because I shared this with her. She's the one who got me into this mess. She'd been telling me about Jesus for years. And she said, when all else is taken away, and if all you've got left is God, that's enough. That's still a lot, Steve. Everything else can fall apart. If you still got God, that's a lot. I hung on to that statement and my walk with God for a year, and it didn't get better. It, 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 was just, it got a little bit better over time, and then it seemed to get darker and darker. And some of you, I know, you've dealt with depression, you've dealt with those kind of thoughts, and you're there. But you hang on. You hang on to that thing. I hung on to that statement and that truth for dear life. If everything else falls apart and all you've got is God, you've still got a lot. 
How would you live your life if you knew without a single doubt that if everything was stripped away, and for some of you in this room, it may happen, but you'd know for sure that God is there. Open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 18. We're continuing in our Church on Fire series, which is going through the book of Acts. <coughs> Excuse me. Going through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 18 now. We've seen Paul do all kinds of different things uh, ever since he went through a radical transformation in Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick up, he's going to go to a new place. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So let me get my fancy Ziegler, now known as the Ziegler pen, because he gave this to me. Um, he starts off here in Antioch, Paul does, and he does this traveling up the, the northern part here. Remember, they, the, he and Barnabas separated because of a dispute over John Mark. And uh, Barnabas goes this way to Cyprus, and he ends up going down here. Uh, Barnabas goes north, and he goes to these cities and regions over in here. When he gets about to here, he gets stuck. Remember, we talked about going to Troas. He tried to go uh, to the north. That's blocked in. He tried to go straight up. That was uh, the Spirit of Jesus. It says stopped him from going this way, where he probably was thinking of going to Ephesus, but says the, the Lord wouldn't allow him to do that. So he says, I guess I'll go to Troas. It's just a uh, process of elimination. He ends up at Troas. From Troas, he sees that vision of a guy over in Macedonia, which is this reason over in here, saying, come and help us. And so he decides to obey it, and he goes over to these areas. Philippi, where we get the book of Philippians. Uh, Thessalonica, where we get First and Second Thessalonians. Goes to Berea, and then last week we had him, and he was over in Athens, Greece. And that wonderful passage about how he deals with philosophers who know nothing of the Bible and he just opens up a philosophy of religion to them and tells them about who God is and corrects them. It's a wonderful passage, Acts 17, last part of it. From there, now he's going to Corinth. Corinth is going to be for Paul a place we're going to see. He's going to stay there quite a while uh, comparatively to how he stays in other places. The interesting thing about Corinth, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, is that he stays there a significant amount of time. This church grows, but it's a mess. This church is a mess. Read First and Second Corinthians. Our, my Bible study, uh, Tuesday nights, we're going through Second Corinthians. And it is amazing how Paul speaks to them. Almost like little children. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's still a mess, this church. And yet that church survived that messiness. And there's even a vital church in Corinth even to this day. And so Paul is going there. Let's continue on here in verse 2. Paul goes to Athens, left Athens, goes to Corinth, says, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, it's very interesting. Luke, the author of Acts, just inserts this. I'm not going to see anything more about uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, for quite a while here, actually till, till next week, later on in chapter 18. But it's very interesting. These two people, this, they just mention Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. And there's a bit of foreshadowing here. They're going to become very important people in three different churches. Corinth, later in Ephesus, map's not up there. And then we don't have anything, we don't know anything more about them that they're mentioned in when Paul writes his letter to the Romans. 
He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, which would make sense that they're there. So the, these people, this husband and wife team, have an impact in Rome also. And they're just, they're just normal people. They're tent makers, which uh, there's a lot of debate on what that exactly is, but they probably worked with canvas, and Paul did too, and that's what they did for a living, and they hung out together. Now, what's going on in Rome? In AD 49, Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, evicted, or they gave an edict to evict all Jewish people out of Rome. And the reason for it is this, and this has survived. Um, one of their, one of the uh, ancient Roman historian has written down. He says, the edict was given. It says because. The Jews were in a state of constant tumult at the instigation of one Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Now most people think that they're talking about Christ and that there was this issue with Jewish people and Christians and that they just fought so much that Claudius just said, gone, you can, you can, I'm not going to kill you but you cannot be in my presence anymore. I don't want you in Rome. I don't want to walk down the street and hear any more people arguing about this anymore. It's done. Perhaps there was riots, who knows, whatever. There was probably about that time 20,000 uh, Roman Jewish people. At least we have a record of 4,000 of them being scattered out of Rome. Get out of Rome. And so they spread all over the place. Two of those people were Aquila and Priscilla. Isn't that cool? You ought to marry someone whose name rhymes with you, you know? <laughs> Steve and Eve. Tim and Slim. <laughs> That's it. I got nothing. <laughs> Zim, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. <clears throat> That's all it says about them right now. Obviously, we're going to find out that if they weren't already followers of Jesus, they were just followers of the Old Testament, that Paul convinces them. May, perhaps they already were. We don't, we're not told at this point. But they're going to become very precious to Paul in his ministry. Okay, verse 4. Something happens now. Paul does this. This is his normal pattern. When he comes to a new city, the first place he goes is downtown right into the synagogue. And they allow guest rabbis to speak. Paul was a rabbi and they allow him to speak. It says every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Some people think they didn't have to do the tent making anymore so now he's just going, going at it every day. He's, he's going to be teaching and preaching. He's going to be at this full time. Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So what happens here? He goes into where, where he's hoping to find people who are followers of God. He goes and tells them that, guess what? God's son Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, came and he's here and they reject him. Do, do, I think we see this so many times in Acts, you forget to see the incredible irony there. It's like somebody walking in here and talking about something about God and you just dismiss him. 
It's, it's radical stuff. The picture in the New Testament, especially in Acts, is that there is a religious group of people that, that, are, that are just like to think about religious thoughts and perhaps debate religious things, but have no interest in the things of God. That's the picture in the Bible. That's a scary picture. If that doesn't scare you a little bit, it should. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean just believe whatever you want. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about your religion, which is Christianity. It doesn't mean you shouldn't think about what, what passages mean. It, it doesn't mean even that you shouldn't be involved in understanding theology. I mean, we teach theology here. I'm a theology nut. I love that stuff. But if it ever gets to the point where you take your religion and you get it, I've got all the points down. Doom, 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 doom. I got it all down. But you don't have your heart opened up to God, Jesus will say, I never knew you. I think the irony of this passage is this last week, I, at the last minute, was able to get into a, a class. I'm starting a, a, a program at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, I was at the last minute able to get into one of the foremost scholars on the book of Romans. I'm a Romans geek. I love the book of Romans. I, 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 just, I, just, ugh, I just think this is the greatest book ever written. I, I just, so cool. And, and the, the Apostle Paul it just, and the Holy Spirit working through him is just a genius in the way it's laid out. And yet I have so many questions about it. I've been looking at it for 20 years and I still have a bunch of questions. And I found out about this class. And I, they were filled up. And I, I said, even at the last minute, let me know. And God provided and I got in. And I, I spent 8.30 to 4.30 every day with, with one of the foremost scholars on the book of Romans. And we sat there always asking the question, I wonder what Paul meant here. What do you think Paul meant as he wrote some of these very, very complicated things? Picture the picture now. Here, here, are, these, here are these people who are sitting in the synagogue and the apostle Paul is teaching them. And They'd scratch your head and go, I wonder what Paul meant. Oh, wait a minute. He's here. Why don't we ask him? They could have asked the Apostle Paul. And guess what? They still rejected him. They still rejected the message. Wasn't going to get any better than this. This was it. I mean, you want to talk about preachers? The Apostle Paul is lighting it up in the synagogue. I mean, they're yelling... Amen, or what have you do in Yiddish? I, I don't know, but there, this is happening preaching. And they reject the guy. Hope community, and I'm speaking to me too, beware of religion. It will suck you dry. Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. If it's about a systems of of thought about a worldview, go become a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Reform Party. I don't care. A Communist. It's not about that. It's about a relationship with the living God. If you forget that, if you forget that simple point, everything becomes rote. If you're wondering why your Christianity might feel boring, it's because you haven't licked your fingers and stuck them in the outlet of God. <laughs> you're reading the instruction book about how electricity works. 
That's cool. Lick your fingers and stick them in the outlet of God. That's Christianity. Don't reject Jesus. Don't go to church like I did as a kid and miss Jesus. Some people believe, though, and in, uh, he, he's kicked out of the synagogue. In Acts 18, it says, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, or Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Now, that's a real interesting phrase. You've got to always wonder why people insert certain things. Could have just said, he left the synagogue and he goes to this other guy's house, Justice's house. It doesn't say that. He says he left he left the synagogue and he went to Justice's house. And by the way, where was Justice's house? Right next door. That is so in your face. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, um, we, played, we played sports all the time. Every opportunity we had, we were outside playing sports. Uh, and we, our, one of our favorite winter things was boot hockey. You know, where you just play the tennis ball and, oh, it gets frozen. And, and, and these things always, always ended. It, it always ended the same way, with a fist fight. It just, yeah, there you go. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's just, it's just the way, it's just the way games on the Iron Range always end. You know, you're just wailing on each other. Somebody's pummeling somebody over something. Hacking with the stick or the puck got too frozen and you're supposed to only go above here, but you know, headhunter, you know, he always took shots. Everything. Didn't matter. <clears throat> so we're, one of our favorite places to play was the house right next door to my house. And it's a real interesting deal. Um, is that they had a driveway, but they decided to expand their driveway and make it a loop. Well, when they made the loop of the driveway, it made a great place down here to play boot hockey. But when they made the loop, about five feet of it was actually on our property line. I mean, my dad never said anything to them, ever. But about five feet of it, he told me one day, he said, you know, that's actually on our property line. Should never tell about a nine-year-old kid that because he's going to use it to their advantage. <laughs> so we're playing boot hockey. And I don't even know what happened. I don't remember how it was. But the, the, the big thing when you're nine was, get out of my yard. <laughs> you're kicked out. So what I did, what every smart aleck would go and do is, I went and sat on the snowbank. Right on the end there, you know, because they used the plow to move it. He says, get out of my yard. I said, I am out of your yard. This is my property line. Uh-uh. I said, yes, go look right down there. We had a, there was actually a, uh, some type of thing in the pole in the ground. I said, look, line it up with that one. And he looked in. And here I was sitting on the snowbank, right in the boot hockey arena, and still there on my own yard and out of his yard. Now, when a guy kicks you out of his yard, the, the intention is, go away. <laughs> right? That's the intention. We've kicked you out of the synagogue. Go away. Where does he go? Next door. I love that. <laughs> He's sitting on a snowbank. Sitting there going, I am in my yard. <laughs> Not only that, but the guy who runs the synagogue comes and sits in the snowbank with them. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Isn't that cool? They get kicked out of the synagogue but they're able to go over there. Now, I want to take just a moment to kind of do a little bit of a jot here, just for a second. Hang with me. We've been in Acts now 18 chapters, and I, I, there's four things, there's four ways 
that identified early initial followers of Christ as followers. There's four things that marked them, so to speak. Three in which they did and one in which was done to them. The first one you can see right here. <coughs> Excuse me. It says they, they believe. Now that's all over the New Testament. That's not just in the book of Acts. The word believe is all over the Bible. What does the Lord require of you only want to believe? Faith. It's ultimately trust. It's saying, Lord, I'm not going to trust in anything else to be my God. I'm going to allow you to be my God. In the area of my sins, Lord, I'm not going to try to pay back you anything for my sins. I'm going to let Jesus have them. You know, that's he's my Savior. He's my Lord, my Savior. He, I, I, I believe in him. You, it's obviously an intellectual thing, too. You have to believe it. But it's more than that. It's a trust thing. You're trusting. That's one of the things. Now, the other one is from Acts chapter 2. The first time Peter ever gives a, a, any kind of a Christian message, he, they say, what should we do? And he tells them. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, he says, I'm going to read the whole thing and we'll just kind of go one by one of these. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what's interesting about that passage? Anybody? I don't have a shiny dime today. What, what's not there? Say, I didn't hear you. Say it again. Yeah. Believe is not there. We'd all freak out at that and go, what? Repent? That means turn from something. Be baptized. That's a, 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 something you go through. So publicly you're declaring. It's a, it's a ceremony in a sense. And then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say anything about believing. Now, that, does that mean that Peter didn't believe in believing? No. No, he did. It's just this particular time. To the, to the culture, the early church culture, these four things were so tied together that you could say any, any one of them and the other ones came along. We have separated them. We've completely separated these ideas. Oh, I need to repent, which means I need to turn from something into believing something else. Well, that just kind of makes sense if you think about it. Baptism to a Jewish audience. The phrase baptism, they would have immediately thought of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was someone who came along and he baptized people. He baptized Jewish people. Now, one of the things, um, you may be sitting there wondering about baptism right now. and You, you may come, I know that's a controversial thing right now. Uh, some, some people in this congregation, myself too, were baptized as an infant. Hope practices a believer baptism by immersion. We believe that it's something, it's a sign of something you do after you have come to Christ. It's, it's a thing, the way you declare it. And you might be thinking, gosh, you know, just let it go. We, this is Lutheran and Catholicville. Let it go. Don't, don't push this thing. That's offensive. And you know, for the most part, I usually do. But I just got thinking, I was away this week, and I was just thinking more about this. Do you know how offensive it would have been? For John the Baptist to tell Jewish people that they needed to be baptized, that was something that if you wanted to become a Jew and you weren't a Jew, you went through. It was a, it was a ceremony to get you in. It was, saying you were, it was saying to them, in essence, you were unclean like the Gentile. <laughs> Just yuck. And, that, and John the Baptist was saying that, and they would think of that, that that became the Christian rite, the way to get into the, the fellowship. Now, I know that may be offensive to you in the room, but man, it was more offensive to these people. When Paul tells them, when Peter tells them to be baptized, it's an offensive thing. 
So I don't mean to offend you. That's not my intention. But my intention maybe to get you to think a little bit. We're going to have a baptism here in April. If you'd like to be baptized, that'd be great. If you've never been baptized, you'd like to publicly declare your, your faith in Christ as, as a willful thing. We'd love to do that. Those four things. Believe, repent, be baptized, and the last thing was something that's done to you. It says you will receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to go into this next week. How is that evidenced? In some cases, three times in the book of Acts, it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. It's a different language. I'm of the belief that that gift still exists, but I'm also of the belief that it is not normative to say that you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about why those three instances were, I think it's next week or the week after, why it happened there. I don't believe that. I don't think that's the normative thing. And we'll talk about why uh, later. But there is something about the Holy Spirit coming into your life that it's not just changing your worldview. There's something that happens and you're transformed. The marks of the Christian were faith, repentance, being baptized, and a changed life because God himself through the Holy Spirit was residing in you. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but you're moving in different ways. That's what happens to Crispus and his household and many of the Corinthians in, in verse 8. Now, a very amazing passage here in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now... If you have a different version of your Bible, like the New American Standard or one of those ones that's more literal, it might be helpful here. The first words that Jesus says in a vision to him are not, don't, do not be afraid, but it's actually stop fearing. Stop it. Now, I don't want to push this too far, but in order to stop doing something, you had to have been doing it, Right? I mean, I don't want to push that too hard, but I, I think between when Paul got kicked out of the synagogue and even though he's sitting on the snowbank there with some other people, within the Apostle Paul there was fear. Serious fear. If you don't believe me, read Corinthians. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, I came with trembling and fear. There's something about this city that gave him the weebie-jeebies. And he was afraid. And Jesus tells him, stop fearing, keep on speaking. And the promise is this, he says, I am with you. No matter what, Paul, I am with you. If everything else falls apart, know that I am with you and that's enough. I am with you. And the second thing is promised is, you will not be attacked and harmed. Again, I'm, I love the New International Version. It's one of my, I was handed that when I first uh, became a follower of Christ, and I like it, although this, ver they just botch it here bad. It, it's, uh, it says, you will not be attacked and harmed. Oh, boy, that's bad. It, it should say something, you will, you will not be attacked with, with, an, with an essence of that harm will come to you. It's not two different things. It's one thing, attack being harmed. Because, we're going to find out in just a second, and the NIV even uses these words, they got attacked. It's like, well, that didn't work. 
it didn't work because the NIV, in all due respect, didn't know what they were doing. They messed this up. It's a different word there in the original language. Paul is supposed to stop fearing, keep on speaking, don't be silent. And why is all this going to take place? Because Jesus says, I have many people in this city. I have many people in the city? What do you mean I got many people in the city? I got Crespus and his household and a few other Corinthians sitting on the snowbank. No. Paul, Paul, I got a lot more. They just don't know it yet. But they're my people. You might be hanging out with people right now that you might think are the least likely ever to become a follower of Jesus. And you don't know it and they don't know it. My father-in-law, I would put on that list. And God gave him the gift of cancer which allowed him to open his eyes and to see and he became a follower of Jesus. Got a great picture on my blog of him reading his Bible and falling asleep. It, it, it's actually a tribute to him, and it was after he died, and it could look like he's dead, but he's not dead there. He's, he's, uh, he's just reading his Bible. So a little footnote there underneath the picture, this is not when he died. He was alive reading his Bible, huh? <clears throat> In God's amazingness, when he gives you a promise, it's never just uh, an idle one. God promises to give you peace, but in order for you to have peace, you've got to go through war, right? It doesn't make any sense if there's no potentiality for harm. And so here comes one in verse 12. When Gallio was pro proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul. See, that, that, that's, just, that, that's just bad. I should have used a different version for this. The word is not attack. Those two words are different words in the original language. So it meant they made, uh, uh, they came towards him unified. So J Jesus just said, you're not going to get attacked. And then it looks like here, hey, wait a minute. He just got attacked. He didn't get, it's a different kind of attack. Like they're going to make attack on you like an intellectual. They're trying to come, an insurrection kind of a deal. Okay, enough. I love the NIV. It's good. Um, I do, I, I do, but this one, okay. And brought him into court. This man they charge, so they, they take Paul and they take him to, to civilian court. It'd be like dragging someone down to Hennepin County downtown at the courthouse. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, when they mean the law, they don't mean Roman law, they mean Jewish law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Paul's just ready to open his mouth and say something Gallo said. Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. You've got to realize that what happened in Rome when Claudius said, away, is happening all over the place. As these people are dragging them into civil court, they're like, okay, I don't want to deal with this. This is your problem. You deal with it. I will not be a judge of such things. So he ejected them from court. <whistles> Out they go. Then they, and the scripture doesn't tell us who they is. You hope it's not the Christians. It could have been, but I think it was the people who brought them there. Then they turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, the new synagogue ruler, because remember the old one's sitting on the snowbank. They turned on the synagogue ruler and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I just love what's included sometimes. That is not needed to be there. But it's, it's just like he's just watching her eating his hot dog, watching this guy get beat. 
Showing no concern whatsoever. That's cool. That's a cool picture. Of that the, 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 the Roman rulers just don't care. They just don't, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now, Philip Yancey, in, if you get Christianity Today, in the back page, he wrote an article. And it's called Global Suspense. I commend it to you. It's a great little one-page, I like one-page articles. I'm a slow reader. He gives an analogy in there that I think is very, very apropos for us. He says this. He says, in World War II, there was a, uh, a prison camp where they kept prisoners from, for the, from the Allies. And they were in this German prison camp. And unbeknownst to the guards, the Americans and the British and whoever else were part of this prison camp had fashioned together somehow a, a radio. And so when VE Day came and, and, and the German population or the German communication systems had broken down, the Americans and the British and everybody else heard about it first in this camp, prison camp. And the guards hadn't heard about it. So all of a sudden throughout the camp, it starts to get spread. The war's over. Germany has surrendered. And the prisoners are just stoked. In fact, Yancey writes this. He says, for three days, the prisoners were hardly recognizable. They sang, waved at guards, laughed at the German shepherd dogs, and shared jokes over meals. On the fourth day, they awoke to find that all the Germans had fled, leaving the gates unlocked. The time of waiting had come to an end. You see what the deal is there? They were still imprisoned. They were still in the prison. The guards didn't know yet that the war was over, and yet their attitude was one of, oh man, hi Poochie, nice doggy doggy. It was completely flipped. We live in this time. When that happened, when the cross of Christ happened, war was over. War's over. There's a mopping up operation happening right now, but we live in this strange time where the, it's done. I've read the back of the book. Don't mean to spoil it for you. We win. And, and it comes over to this point in time when we will win decisively, clearly, with but we live in this time right now where the enemies of our souls, Satan and his cohorts, and they're very real, they're doing everything they can in their last hours to make your life miserable and to keep people from becoming followers of Christ. In fact, just reading through my Bible right now, in Matthew chapter 8, there's a great passage. Jesus comes uh, across a lake and he says, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came came running from the tomb. Um, excuse me, coming from the tombs, met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And then they said, "This, this is what the demons are saying. What do you want with us, Son of God?" They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Huh. They already know it's going to happen. They're guards in this prison. They know the war is already coming. They just don't know that it's not yet today going to be in its finality. We need to live like, we need to live like those prisoners. 
Because you realize that if everything else falls apart, God is there still with you. I want to give you some takeaways from this. Just five of them real quickly. Just kind of a, there's a lot of things going on in this passage. <clears throat> First thing, of course, is that the Corinthian church is born. Paul, just by stepping out in faith, and, and God does an, a miraculous, a amazing thing in Corinth. It's a church that will cause him much headaches, but it will be a vibrant church, and it is even to this day. Second thing is there's Priscilla and Aquila. There's ordinary folk. And yet they're going to play a huge part in Paul's ministry and they get mentioned in the Bible. How much cooler than that can you be? They're just normal people though. Third thing is just the danger of being religious. Beware that. Read your Bible. Read the Gospels knowing how Jesus dealt with religious people. It ain't pretty. Fourth thing is responding to the message of Jesus. Wherever you're at in your journey, you need to respond to the message of Jesus all the time. Some of you are at a point where for the first time in your life, maybe today, you want to put your faith in Christ. For the first time, you want to believe. Others, you come to that point where you say, you know what, I think it'd be appropriate now for me to consider being baptized. Others, you're at your point where you need to say, Lord, I've wandered. I've wandered from you. I need to repent and turn from that. Believe once and again wholeheartedly in you. Wherever you're at, we all need to respond to the message of Jesus. But the most important thing, I think, out of this whole thing is the surety of God's promises for you. They are sure. It doesn't mean that, like Paul, when he got promised that they won't, he won't be harmed, it looked like he was put right dead center in harm's way. And, and, and um, I don't know any better way to say this than just to say it. God likes that. God's kind of a show-off. He likes putting you right at the edge and then rescuing you. He, he's a Hollywood director kind of a thing. He likes that. If you read your Bible that way, it's all over the place. God paints himself into a corner. There's no way out. <gasps> Look at that. How did that happen? That's amazing. <laughs> now, for anyone else to be a show-off, it's egotistical. For God to do it, it's gracious. Because he's God. Okay. Hebrews 13, 5, and I'll close with this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, and this is the promise, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Everything falls apart and all else is taken away and all you have left is God. That's still a lot. Let's pray. Fathers, I think back to those days in 1983. That just seems like so long ago. It seems like another country. And yet you were faithful, very faithful to me then, even in the midst of pain. Lord, you've never promised that we won't experience pain. In fact, I think you've promised just the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world, you've said. So Father, I want to pray for people in this room right now who need to hear that word, who need to feel that, that they know that you're not leaving them, that you're not forsaking them, even though it feels that way. I pray for them in this room who are going through depression, are going through condemnation, are going through all kinds of things in their lives that they're 
they're sorrowful about mistakes that they've made. Whatever it is, God, you have promised that you will not leave and you will not forsake. So Jesus, I just ask that you'd fill this room with your spirit, you'd fill it in people's hearts and that they would know it clearly. God, too, I ask that we would be people who are responders to Jesus and not religious. It's so easy just to fall into a system, a way of acting. This is the way I do things. I have my disciplines. I, I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. And Lord, you show up and we miss you. God, I don't want to miss you. We don't want to miss you as you come. So Jesus, we just pray that you would, as you show yourselves in our life, that you'd give us that spiritual sensitivity to say, no, I'm not going to rely just on my religion and my way of doing things, but I'm going to look for Jesus. I'm going to be about Jesus and not about a system. Do that in our midst, God, especially in these days as we're watching you do things, even in our church where we're so encouraged to be studying the book of Acts and seeing how you still light churches on fire. You're still by your spirit working. And I pray you'd continue to do that. Show yourself to us. Even as we sing these last songs and respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name.